a joy to fill in uh, this morning. Uh, and we will be, if you have, if you grab the bulletin on your way in, we will be uh, in the little letter of 3rd John. You can make, you can begin to make your way there. It's at the very end of your Bible. And so it actually may be easier to find the book of Revelation and go backwards uh, to the little letter of 3rd John. And we'll look at that some uh, this morning. And Lord willing, uh, in some additional Lord's Day mornings in the future. And so uh, make your way to Third uh, John or grab the, any materials or notes that are helpful for you. But uh, it's been said, maybe you can complete or finish this statement. Where there are people, there are what? I was going to say there are opportunities to pray. No, um, <laughs> there are problems. There's problems. You're, you're exactly right. Um, that's true in your family. That's true in family in general. That's true at work, isn't it? And that's true in the church. It always has been. And 3 John is a little window into first century people and problems going on in church. And guess what, guys? Not a lot has changed. There's some things that we'll be able to identify with as we meet some of the characters in this little letter. Um, maybe you've known a bossy, dysfunctional church leader or pastor. Not at this church, but at other churches. Um, hopefully not here. Third John's going to speak to that, okay? Uh, maybe you have wondered, how do we think about missions biblically? Well, in addition to the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, Third John is going to speak about that. And this little letter, I think, will instruct our hearts about how truth and love are braided together in ministry. And so this morning, I want to do two things. I want to uh, orient us a little bit to this letter. Because it is possible that, you know, day by day in your devotional time in the Word, you have just been marinating in Third John. It's possible. But it's also possible this is a relatively unexplored uh, corner of scripture for us. And so I want to orient our thinking around some background to this letter. That's the first thing I want to do. And then I want to begin to look at the greeting as we unpack some of that. And we learn some from uh, a, a faithful believer named Gaius. So we'll, we'll consider some of that this morning as well. Uh, if you're not already there, uh, you can flip to 3 John. But I'm going to give us some uh, ongoing background information here as we, as we kind of just set the stage for this letter. 3 John is the shortest book in your Bible. It's the shortest book in the New Testament and Old. 219 words in the original Greek text, fitting on a single piece of papyri, a single uh, sheet, if you will. And, and this little sort of postcard of a letter, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a personal letter. It's not a letter to a church. It's a letter to a church member, we might say it that way, named Gaius. We're going to learn more about him. And it's written by John, not John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, but John the Apostle, one of the twelve who Jesus called to himself, uh, one who uh, was called by the Lord, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he wrote five New Testament books, John did. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he wrote the Prophecy of Revelation. And out of those five books, friends, both 2nd and 3rd John deal with the issue of hospitality. Hospitality. But when I say hospitality, I don't mean small group at your house, or, and I don't mean uh, having believers over for barbecue 
lunch after church on Sunday, although that is good. I don't have lunch plans, um, if anyone is offering. Um, but in all seriousness, hospitality is not limited to just the one another dynamic and ministry in the first century. There's a sense in which first century hospitality was intertwined with support for full-time traveling teachers who were spreading the gospel. Uh, it was intertwined with public ministry because you maybe know this, but there were many house churches in the first century. There were lots of congregations who didn't necessarily possess church property and facilities. And so traveling ministers were supported by the service of hospitality. Local churches were also supported by the service of hospitality. So when I say that, when I say hospitality, think missions work, think financial support, think provision for traveling ministers, much like Jesus himself in Luke 10 when he sent out the 70 for the sake of the name. There were those who were following that pattern in the coming uh, generation. Now, 2 John, we're not studying 2 John, but 2 John is going to warn against uh, hospitality and ministry support of those who don't teach the truth. In fact, you can probably see 2 John. It's right there next to 3 John. Verse 7, John calls these people deceivers. He says, when these people look for fellowship and support, don't do it. Don't give it to them. So that's 2 John. 3 John is not a warning about uh, hospitality and ministry support to false teachers. It's an encouragement to support genuine, faithful teachers. It encourages a guy named Gaius, who we'll meet, to support those who do teach the truth. And in 3 John, we have three main characters. They're all interacting with this dynamic of traveling ministry and support. Uh, we have Gaius, who's going to be the recipient. He's a faithful church member who's being encouraged by the Apostle John to support and partner with guys like Demetrius. We meet Demetrius at the very end of the letter. But the reason that John tells guys like Gaius to support guys like Demetrius is because there was another gentleman, a pastor, a leader in the congregation named Diotrephes. And he was a power-hungry control freak who was a spiritual leader who was wielding spiritual authority in an inappropriate way. And so there was a power-hungry, arrogant leader named Diotrephes. Diotrephes was rejecting others' uh, ministry. He was consolidating his own spiritual power. He was refusing the apostolic authority of John himself. And he even excommunicated people who disagreed with him. Just put him out of the church unilaterally. And, and so does that make sense? We've got these three characters. You've got Gaius, this church member. You've got Demetrius, who's worthy of support. And you've got Diotrephes, who's a leader and a power-hungry troublemaker in the body. Let's go ahead and read the letter together now with those things in mind. 3 John, starting in verse 1, says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear... ...of my children walking in truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully... ...in whatever you accomplish for the brethren... ...and especially when they are strangers... ...and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way... ...in a manner worthy of God... 
For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you. But I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly. And we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Well, you see the picture here. You see several characters, some of this background of the dynamics of ministry. And, and we have this guy, Gaius. Gaius had an outstanding faith and ministry. And this is reported back to John. You see that in verse 3? Um, we won't look at it this morning, but according to verse 5, um, his partnership, his faithful partnership in the truth, it was undeniable. There was those who were being affected by it. And John is saying, he says in verse 9, he says, I already wrote you, but uh, wrote the assembly there, but Diotrephes seemed to suppress that letter, according to verse 9. And what he's saying now in verse 14 is essentially, Gaius, hang tough until I come, and in the meantime, welcome Demetrius because he's a true brother. You guys get, see the picture there? The theme and purpose of this letter is ministry service committed to truth and love. Ministry service committed to truth and love. You see, Gaius, he was walking out the truth. That's what it says in verse 4. We'll look at that. It says, I have no greater joy than this to know that my children are walking in truth. Verse 11, he tells Gaius to imitate what's good. And so the theme, if we could sort of wrap it together, some have said, well, the theme is hospitality, but we recognize that hospitality is a, is a full-orbed ministry in the first century. And so I would summarize it this way, that it's ministry service committed to both truth and love. And these sort of two railroad tracks, they run throughout the whole letter. They come up 19 times in this short little letter. And it gives us really the heart and practice of sincere service and ministry in a world of broken people, in a church that's not perfect. It gives us some helpful instructions here. But one commentator, Colin Cruz, uh, said that the letter has three purposes that correspond to the three main characters. And I, I found this helpful. He says, it encourages Gaius to, to, uh, in his noble service. It confirms that Diotrephes' leadership is out of line and it, it prepares for the coming of Demetrius. And in a similar way, we could maybe outline the book. And so an outline that sort of follows through 3 John, sort of gives us the big picture, is also uh, one that orbits around these three parts, these three main characters. And I've put an outline in your handout, if that's helpful for you. Um, verses 1 to 8 uh, describe a commending of Gaius, the godly church member. Verse 1 to 8, and we'll look at part of this this morning... They, they commend Gaius, this godly church member, this godly uh, gentleman in the church who was providing support. Verse 9 and 10 is a condemning of Diotrephes, the arrogant leader. Remember, we've got Gaius, this 
this, uh, this godly example, but Diotrephes was the arrogant leader who was controlling among the congregation. And so verse 9 and 10 is a condemning of Diotrephes, the arrogant leader. And then verse 11 to 15 is a recommending of Demetrius as a devoted traveling minister. Devoted traveling minister. So you have a commending of Gaius, a condemning of Diotrephes, and a recommending of Demetrius. Does that make sense? We've got a few characters here, and we're just kind of jumping into this first century church. And what I want to do from this point forward is break down verse 1 to 4 a little bit further. Um, we have in these opening verses really the, the, the author and the recipient. And so I want to continue to think about some background as we look at first, John the elder of love, and second, Gaius the recipient beloved. That's where we're going to go, okay? So first, John, the elder of love. Look at verse 1 again. It says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And friends, maybe you know this. In the gospel record, John is called the one whom Jesus loved. Perhaps it's an oversimplification, but some have called Paul the apostle of faith, Peter the apostle of hope, John the apostle of love. Yeah. And so what we have here first is John, the elder of love. Look at the verse. It doesn't call himself an apostle. He doesn't introduce himself as John. He describes himself as, verse 1, the elder. And John certainly was older at this point. This would have been 50 years after Jesus' ministry. That places John at somewhere between 70 and 80 years old. So he was older in age. There is a fatherly dimension in even this letter, verse 4, you can see there it says he speaks of spiritual children. There is a provenness and a, and a wisdom and a, a fatherly dimension to John's shepherding. But more so than age, this word elder refers to a position of spiritual leadership within the church. An elder carries out pastoral or shepherding uh, care by leading people, by, by modeling godliness and by feeding with the word of God. So elder is a teaching and ruling office of church leadership. You may be familiar with that. And what happened is during John's lifetime, the church went through a shift from apostolic leadership to elder leadership. Uh, the, the word, we see that shift in the passing off of the apostles. Uh, Pastor Dan mentioned that as we looked at uh, really the, the uh, uh, topic of apostleship in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, but, but during John's lifetime, this experience of a shift occurred. In fact, the word elder, when it's first used to, res, uh, to describe uh, church leadership, is in Acts 11.30. And it's describing essentially uh, the new church plant in Antioch and a, an offering that was taken up during a famine that was sent back to the very early, early church in Jerusalem and to the elders there. And so we see the word elder come up in Acts 11. Not long later, you have elders and apostles working together in Acts chapter 15 about this whole question of, do you have to, after you get saved, become circumcised? And the answer was, no, right? You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. The Jerusalem council wrestling with this doctrinal issue of circumcision in Acts 15. So you have elders and uh, and uh, apostles working together. Fifteen years after that, Paul writes the, two, uh, the three pastoral epistles of Titus uh, and First and Second Timothy. And rather than perpetuating apostolic succession or encouraging Titus and Timothy to do the same, maybe you know this, what does he tell them to do? 
raise up, train elders in the local church. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So this ruling and teaching office of church leadership was one that formalized during John's lifetime, who was himself both an apostle and an elder. And during that sort of unique first century transition, John provided probably actually eldering oversight to multiple congregations and, and people as they were, uh, he, he was posted in Ephesus. By the way, I mean, what a great thing to be at the church in Ephesus. Paul spent years there. He left Timothy to pastor there. John pastored there. So he was stationed in Ephesus and he was interacting with these other churches around the greater area of Ephesus and probably... Uh, exercised some dimensions of oversight in multiple congregations as a unique elder and apostle. And yet, what does he do when he opens this letter? He could have said the apostle, and yet he says the elder, the spiritual leader. And this man, Gaius, is one that John loved. Look at verse 1. He says... To the beloved Gaius. He's essentially saying, Gaius, I love you. I love you. Look at verse 1, though. Look, I, I love you in truth. What do you mean, John? What do you mean I love you in truth? What's that? Well, this is the fellowship that the truth brings. This is the truth-cementing bond that knits us together. And so this is a brotherhood kind of love, a fellowship love. And there's John, very first verse of this letter. He's brimming as the apostle of love with tender affection. But... That's not the full picture. Because decades earlier, in his 20s, when he was first called to follow Jesus, John was an explosive, ambitious young man who needed humility, who needed restraint, who needed self-control in his character. We won't look at all these passages, but in Mark chapter 3, Jesus nicknamed James and John. You remember what he nicknamed them? Sons of Thunder, yeah. So John was a thunderous kind of person. Not only that, he was an ambitious person. And in Matthew chapter 20, he did what any masculine man would do. Try to get your mom to ask Jesus for special favors on your behalf. You guys remember this? James and John get their mom to ask for the second and third position in the kingdom. And we know that that's the case because Jesus turns not to their mother, but to the two brothers and says, what are you doing? And the, the other ten disciples, they get mad at these two brothers because John, as a young man, he had zeal, but he lacked humility. He lacked depth in his character. I want to show you another sort of portrait into John's life. Go to the Gospel of Luke. So keep your thing, finger in Third John, but go with me, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This gives us sort of just another window into John's early life as he learned from Jesus. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 <clears throat> says this. And so they're going to minister to the Samaritans. And there was a, there was a deep-seated uh, uh, rift and racism and, and, and hatred and difficulty among the people. And, and this is going to come out in John's immaturity and, and, and lack of compassion. Look at verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he determined to go to Jerusalem... And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now, the Samaritans didn't basically uh, put the same importance on, this, on the place of Jerusalem uh, as, as those of Israel. And so 
uh, it says, verse 53, the Samaritans, they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Not exactly a heart of missionary compassion to the lost. John practiced what I have called Turner burn evangelism, literally. Fire from heaven, Lord? You know, you got the Apostle Paul. We've studied this in 1 Corinthians. I become all things to all people in order that I might win some. John, can we torch him, Lord? You want me to say, say the word? Uh, and so in his early years, John, he, he had a zeal, but he lacked compassion. He had, we could say passion, but he lacked compassion. He lacked patience and sensitivity. Fire from heaven, Lord? His aggressiveness could be harsh. And what happens in the following verses? We won't study it this morning, but Jesus, he rebukes him. He rebukes him in this case. And, and I just am reminded, you know, the idea, friends, that we can be either strong and uncompromising in the truth or gracious and gentle with people, that's a false dichotomy. We have to, we have to capture that. And John needed to capture that. And I think the amazing thing is that Jesus took this thunderous, ambitious man and he redirected and changed him he redirected his passion and his heart and that we would know him today as the apostle of love isn't that isn't that encouraging isn't that amazing he took a fiery younger man and transformed him over time into a balanced apostle mature in the truth and love so that in galatians chapter 2 verse 9 paul says that john was a pillar of the truth John was a pillar of the truth. And the, the picture there of a pillar is not a young kind of opinionizing hothead. No, he became an oak of righteousness. He became a, a one who was stable and mature in the Lord. And so by God's grace, what I'm saying is John learned balance. He learned balance in his Christian life. It, you, you read John's writings, which he wrote later in life as, as the elder apostle, right? Uh, and you read John's writings, and it's amazing. It's so intense. It's so stark and explicit. The way that John writes, it's, it's wild how he, he captures the interactions with Jesus and how Jesus interacted with people, and no one paints reality with starker contrasts and opposites than John. So he holds on to that truth, and yet who wrote on love more than any other author? John. Truth and love. Where do you think he caught this balance from, you guys? From the Lord Jesus himself. Full of grace and truth. So much so that at the end of his life, Jesus, post-resurrection, he told Peter three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. But in his dying hours on the cross, you know what he told John? He said, take care of my mom. That shows you how, how transformed by the love and truth of Christ this apostle was. So this is our author, now writing A.D. 90 to 95 in the vicinity of Ephesus, writing to these uh, surrounding communities. It is John, the apostle of love. Second, let's look at Gaius, the recipient, beloved. And we'll go back to 3 John. Gaius, the recipient beloved. And what I want to do is I want to ask three questions in light of Gaius's model character, in light of his testimony. But before we look at those questions, just note with me a second time. We, we glanced at it briefly. Both verse 1 and verse 2, Gaius is called beloved. Four times in this letter, actually, he's called beloved. And this is a term of warmth, of endearment. 
It's like saying, my dear friend. So there's an affection. There's a sweetness that's wrapped in John's uh, language here. And I, I would just say, you know, there's friends, there's brothers in, in the body of Christ, in this body where I can look at you and say, brother, I love you. Because of our fellowship in Christ, because of our common ministry and perspective in life, there's a sweetness, there's a sharing of affection in the Lord. And yet I pray that this would be my language more and more with, with each of you as we, as we know one another and are knit together in a common faith, even as we sung this morning, right? So three questions that I want to consider in light of Gaius, in light of his ministry, in light of his faith, in light of his character. The first question is, is my soul healthy and stable? Is my soul healthy and stable? Or you could use the word mature. Is my soul healthy that way? Look at verse 2. He says, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So Gaius's soul, his spiritual life, it was healthy. It was stable. Uh, this word prosperous, if you have an ESV, it translates it as I hope that it will go well with you. This word, it's often used for a journey or for a path that succeeds. You can picture like smooth sailing or maybe you're on the interstate and you're on cruise control on a nice road and it's just it's butter. Okay, Maybe you've had a family vacation that's the opposite, right? There's a, it's a disaster. Poor planning, kids fighting, um, people are unhappy, problems with your hotel. Or, if you're me, key items that you forget to pack. This word is the opposite of that. Think of a prosperous journey, a smooth journey. It's a word for provision. It's a word for success. And look at what John adds to it. He says... He supplements that with a prayer for good health, literally soundness. Dr. Luke used this word often in Acts and in his gospel record, uh, the, the, the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, uh, to mean fit or well or safe. So John is praying for what in this verse? Health and wealth. Is this a problem? I thought we weren't supposed to do that, right? Is this a prosperity gospel? I mean, look at it. Look at what the verse is saying. He's praying for health and wealth. Is he saying, because you're godly, Gaius, you ought to be healthy? Or God's design and promise, Gaius, is prosperity and health for all? You know the answer. No. That's not what he's saying here. This is not... The point is not an increase of a standard of living or obtaining uh, certain material possessions. Really, actually, if we read the whole verse, uh, the emphasis is on the healthiness and the wealthiness and the prosperity and the fatness, if you will, the maturity of the spiritual life that Gaius already possesses. You see that? Don't read this wrong. This is not the creepy guy on, you know, late at Late at night on TV that's telling you to text the bottom of the screen with a financial gift in faith. That's not, this is not that. This is more like a father saying, I love you and I pray for you and your ministry in every way. Personally, physically, emotionally, relationally. Look at verse 2 again though. You see the logic. He's saying, guys, your soul, your inner man, it, it is sound and healthy. Your growth and faithfulness, it's clear. Your heart for ministry, it's obvious. It's undeniable. It's proven. And I pray that you would excel in every manner of life in the way that you have excelled spiritually. He's praying that, that, the, that every aspect of his life and ministry would be as fruitful and as productive 
as his commitment to the Lord. And so I ask us again, friends, how about us? Are you spiritually healthy and stable? You say, well, what's the measuring stick? How do I, how do I know? And there's a lot of ways that we could answer that question rightly and biblically. Listen to a few diagnostic questions from Donald Whitney's 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health. These are instructive and helpful for me. One chapter, he, he writes this question. He says, do you thirst for God? Do you thirst for God? Do you increasingly desire his presence? Do you long to abide in Christ, friend? Do you draw near to God? Are you more gripped with his glory and his kindness and his grace today than you were a year ago? Or is our thirst, our love for Christ, plateaued and fading? Psalm 63, verse 1, the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Do you thirst for God? A second question. Do you have a growing concern for the needs of others? Do you have a growing concern for the needs of others, spiritually and physically? I mean, it's sad, but there are some believers who don't really care about ministry to others. So long as they get what they want, the, the programs for their, their children or their spiritual jolts on a, on a Sunday or whatever the case may be. But Gaius, he was a model of concern and care for the needs of other believers, for the needs of other missionaries, for travelers. And I ask, how about us? Are we actively pursuing one another that way? Because I can guarantee in your seat area, in your row even, there are profound needs, prayer needs, personal needs, parenting needs, discipleship needs, broken hearts, physical needs. From hurting relationships to a lingering illness to just a deep struggle with sin. That's, where, that's life, isn't it? As we're growing together. Now Gaius, he obviously had, he had a home and he had resources that blessed others. But even more important than that, he was the kind of person who was concerned for the needs of others. And I've listed some more questions just to, just to self-assess uh, and diagnose on the reflection questions on your handout. But Donald Whitney gives a helpful resource for us there. As we think about Gaius, he was a man of spiritual health and stability and maturity. He had a heart for others. He had a heart for ministry. His soul was so fed on the nourishment that comes from Christ that John prays that all of life would match with that excelling spiritual health. And people were blessed by it. Look at verse 3. He goes on. He says, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you're walking in the truth. So the first question that we could ask is, is my soul healthy and stable? But there's a second question on the basis of verse 3, and that is, do others testify of my walk with Christ? Now, this is challenging. Do others testify of my walk with Christ? You see that in verse 3? There's these brethren. That's other believers. And Gaius was living a lifestyle where he, he ministered unashamed of the Lord, and it had an impact on others. People were speaking openly. They were speaking regularly about the impact of his ministry, of his character, of his integrity. And it just got me thinking. This was challenging for me. It got me thinking. Are brothers responding this way in light of my walk with Christ? Like, are they, are, are they testifying of my faithfulness? If so, praise God. If not, why not? And Lord, give me pause there to meditate and think. See, the truth had so invaded 
Gaius' daily lifestyle to, to such an extent that the impact on others, friends, it was unstoppable. And so what does John say in verse 3? He says, I was what? Very glad. Which, I mean, that um, one, one of the translations says, um, rejoiced exceedingly or, or uh, very glad. It's, a, it's not like, oh, I got a, a coupon for uh, free uh, ice cream at... at uh, Fred Meyer, we get those sometimes. I'm glad about that. I am. But th- this is a deep kind of glad- gladness. Imagine a father who has a son, goes off to school, off to college, at an out-of-state campus, and news comes back, my son is walking with Christ. He's standing against the, the tide of, of compromise, and he's leading others to love and fear and follow Jesus. A deep kind of gladness. Now remember the context. John is in Ephesus. There was fellowship among these tra- uh, these traveling ministers in these communities, and so people were coming back. Maybe it was these traveling missionaries themselves. And look at the verbs in verse three. Those verbs came and testified. Those are present tense verbs, and what they tell us is that there was a continuous pattern of uh, of this testimony. They were continually coming and continually testifying. In other words, John is saying. Gaius, every time people hang out with you, every time that they come and are ministered by you, uh, they they come back refreshed, they come back cared for, they come back encouraged. It reminds me actually of the language in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian often, he either sits down or he's continuing to walk in the way and they engage in this mutually edifying, fruitful discourse. Let's have discourse together. And what happens? They, they, They share testimonies with one another and, you know, they're rehearsing the truths of the gospel to one another and a Christian speaks about how he's refreshed in the Lord. That's the kind of effect that Gaius had. How about us, though? Could we say, hey, do you want to know the power of the gospel? Get to know that family. Get to see how that husband loves his wife. Get to see how she speaks the word in wisdom. What about our missionaries from UBC? What would they say of this church? Wasn't that encouraging last week to hear from uh, returned missionaries and and, uh, and just hear about the, the encouragement there. But, but what would they say of you and me individually as, as, as folks in this church? They testify of our, of our walk, of our faithfulness. Now I want to point out one other thing. Look at verse 3 uh, again. It says how, guys, they testified to what? Your truth. Now this is not relativism, right? Your truth, my truth, true for you, not for me. We see that all the time today in our culture. No, this is a phrase describing how Gaius had internalized the gospel. He had taken the truths of orthodoxy in a personal and practical way. And so John says, your truth in terms of putting the truth into personal practice. Gaius was rowing the oars, if you will, of his Christian life in the grain with the truth, in the current with the truth, confessing it, applying it. Um, And it had an impact. It's just what Jesus taught when he said, you're to let your light shine before men. Salt and light, Matthew chapter 5. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, that the gospel, the sound doctrine of God, is to be adorned in the practice of godly living. And the big idea, friends, is this. Gaius's life was in line with truth. He was a man of integrity. And so number one, we ask this question, is my soul healthy and stable? A second question we could ask is, do others testify of my walk with Christ? But third, I want to ask a question out of verse 4, and that's, am I walking in the truth? 
Am I walking in the truth? Let's look at verse 4. It says, I have no greater joy than this. How am I going to finish that statement? I have no greater joy than this. To hear of my children walking in the truth. Guys, I don't think I'm alone here. Just because you know a biblical truth, just because I know a biblical truth, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're walking in it, does it? I need, I need that reminder. As I grow in knowing the word of God, God's desire for me is to grow ultimately in love, in application, in service, in care for others, in obedience to him. So walking, I was thinking about this this last week, walking, even that verb, it means movement, it means direction. And the verb walk, look in your Bible, verse 3 and 4, John uses it two times. The verb walk is the verb peripateo, peripateo. And the prefix peri means around. And so what you can think of when you think about this word peripateo, it is to walk around in. It's to walk around in the common vicinity of. It's to walk around in a common area or arena. It's to walk around in a common sphere. Peripateo describes our daily life. It describes our daily conduct. John is saying truth is something that we live in life. Now, if I had my phone, I took out my phone, I could follow you around and probably snap a picture of you being a hypocrite. <laughs> and you could probably do that of me. Inconsistency in your life. Could I, could I snap a shot in the next 24 hours where you're not loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your home? Probably. But the question with Perry Pateo is not, could I take my cell phone out and snap a picture? But what if I followed you? This is a creepy thought, I know. But I, I, I put it on record. And I just recorded you. We, we hung out together. I followed you and watched the lifestyle, the direction, the patterns and rhythms of your life. What would I find in your walk, in the, in the dimensions of daily conduct and life? So think, when you think Perry Pateo, think the video camera, not the snapshot, okay? It's, the, it's daily life. And this is so challenging for us. You know, if you want to talk about walking in the truth of patience, for example... Walking in the truth of patience is not doing a word study on patience. I, I wish it was. Um, it's how one might respond to their wife and kids after a really long day at work. Or when a coworker who's exhausting, difficult, just gets in your way. And you, like I, am tempted to make everything in life all about me and how I feel. Right? It's how we respond there that walking in the truth of patience is really tested. It's not just sort of, uh, you know, writing down a verse on patience. It's challenging. In a similar way, walking in the truth of ministry and of service, it means that we have skin in the game. It means time. It means investment. It means involvement in others. And our American values, friends, you know this, of privacy, of convenience, of individualism, they have to be there has to be an assault, a war that's made on those things if we are to walk in the steps that, that the, the Lord paints here with the worthy um, example of Gaius. Gaius had taken the truths about serving and supporting and partnering and one anothering in Scripture, and, and he'd put them into practice in daily life. 
Isn't that helpful to think about? By the way, this is something that's so sweet about VBS. There's an opportunity to serve the kids and to be an outreach in our community, but there's also an opportunity for a lot of hands on deck to serve and to be involved in application of ministry in a variety of ways. Isn't that neat? This is a special thing for the church to rally together and to serve in a variety of ways in addition to evangelizing others. All that to say, when it came to Gaius, when it came to daily life, the walk matched the talk. The walk matched the talk. He refused to let the truth, the word of God, to be, to be abstract, to be theoretical. And I think this is a good reminder for us at UBC, right? Because the principles and the propositions of doctrine, they are absolutely vital. They are absolutely critical. They must be defended in every hour. We were just studying with our college students. 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 4, preach the word. When? In season and out of season. In other words, all the time. There must be a courage to stand. And yet the goal is not just to know or to study, but to know and study that we might walk, that we might live, that we might obey Christ, that we might love one another well, that we might participate in ministry. That was John's joy. Look at verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy. What a statement. John was, he was delighted by Gaius's growth. And I, I tell you, this is the heart of a shepherd. This is the heart of a spiritual father. You've got to think how difficult, 50 years of ministry. I guarantee it that John took pot shots from people and there was controversy surrounding ministry and he was misunderstood and he was attacked, certainly as he stood for the truth. And yet over all of those decades, there's still a sweetness as he's delighting in this other brother and in his faithfulness and in his ministry. And he says, you know what? I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. Now let me mention, John was single. So this is not his literal children, but his spiritual children. That's the, there's certainly an application there, but there's a, a primary uh, emphasis would be on spiritual children. So I just want you to, I want you to think about something together with me. This, just, this really struck me as I thought about it. What John describes as his greatest joy is only something we can partake of if we're making disciples. Think about that. What John describes as his greatest joy, I have no greater joy, is only something we can partake of if we are making disciples. Isn't that interesting? What a joy that is. It's messy, it's difficult, it's often one step forward, two steps back at times. But to make disciples, to make learners, followers of Jesus. You know, friends, there are too many Christians who are on the sidelines. They're, they're not making disciples. They're not sharing in John's joy. And so I ask, believer, is anyone rejoicing this way because of you? Because of me? Because of our growth in Christ? Because of our walk in Christ? Because of our commitment to spiritual things? Do you have former mentors or pastors or parents who rejoice greatly. By the way, this is the same thing that Paul did in 1 Thessalonians. He was quickly ripped away from the Thessalonian congregation. We learned that he spent only a few weeks there and that he had to leave quickly because of persecution. And so when he finds a report from Timothy that the church, even though they continue to be persecuted, is doing well, he says, now we live knowing that you continue in Christ. You, what is our joy and our crown? Is it not you, O Thessalonians? This is the same heart of the Apostle Paul. There's no greater joy than to see children spiritually walking in truth. 
And guys, the reason that the reason that the scripture, I think, speaks this way, the reason that there's no greater joy is because God is visibly demonstrating that the process of spiritual investment, the process of change, is not in vain. It hasn't ended with me. It hasn't ended with you. It hasn't ended with John. I mean, if you have been transformed by the power of the gospel, if you've been transformed by Jesus Christ, there is something special and, and, and encouraging and powerful when you see that then being produced in someone else, isn't there? That is jet fuel for a shepherd. That is jet fuel for all of those who long to see Christ glorified in their lives and in the lives of others. So I ask, are we on John's wavelength here? Do we rejoice in these kinds of things? Are our hearts tuned to these desires? Are we reason for the rejoicing of others? Are we walking in truth? When it comes to sin and temptation, when it comes to loving the unlovely, when it comes to standing for unpopular issues, that scripture is clear on. When it comes to the inconvenience of ministry and of hospitality and service, beloved, are we walking in truth? Because we're all gifted, we're all called to serve, we're all involved in one another's. This is a challenging example from Gaius, isn't it? Challenge my heart. Well, what have we seen this morning? We've seen a few things. We've learned a little bit about this background, about this, this first century dynamic. We've thought a little bit about John and about Gaius. A big idea, though, is as we glance into the life of Gaius, I think really the power behind his ministry impact is that the truth of God was sheathed in love. It's the truth of God walked out in love. It's those two railroad tracks of truth and love. Let me think about it. Truth was the meat and potatoes of his sound walk, of his spiritual health. Truth and love are the direction of the oars that he was pulling in. Our generation, you know this, has, has gone the way of Pilate. What is truth? What is truth, even as a category? That's what Pilate, Pilate said. You, you, you know that. We live in a postmodern soup at times that melds these concepts, denies truth... Cast suspicion on the truth, redefines love. Oh, but believer grounded in Christ this morning, if you know, if you know Christ, if he's transformed your life, let, let, me just, let me just remind you of what you already know. That the truth is precious. The truth will set you free. The truth is powerful for impact in your life and in your ministry. The truth will lead you to salvation in Christ and it will equip you for godliness in your walk with Christ. It'll stabilize you. It'll guard you from deception. And so, dear friend, if you've been changed by the power of the truth and love of Jesus, who says himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. If that's you, I just want to encourage you. Live the truth. Love the truth. Walk in the truth. And love the one whom the truth points towards. Let me tell you something. If you are here this morning and you're without Christ, the truth of God's word points not in its end game to a proposition, but to a person. And if you do not know Christ in a personal relationship, you have not surrendered your autonomy, you have not given your heart, your life, your allegiance to him, I urge you, do so right now. Do so where you're seated. 
He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus will do what no other man can do. Jesus will forgive your sins. Jesus will give you life. Jesus will make you new. Because there's one thing I know. Every single person in this room is a sinner. Every one of us has fallen short. Gaius is not the ultimate model. Gaius' life and ministry was powerful because of Jesus. John was not someone in his own right. John was transformed over time by the grace and love of Jesus. So I urge you, friend, cast your hope. Turn from your sin. Cast your hope and your faith on Jesus. Let's pray.